Bruchim Aboim Shem Hashem Birachnuchem. Praise Hashem. Welcome to our weekly Wednesday Shir. Dedicating the Shir to Shir or Shira Bas Daniel. And the upcoming yard site of Hei Shvat, which once again is a Befraim and Hanan Yam Teflipa. Susi Yang Valenu, I'll call you Israel. Pashis Voeda. It is Shabbos Mavarchim Chedesh Shvat. Rish Chedesh Mirz Hashem Habalinu Liteva is one day on Monday Mirz Hashem. So the next week's year also will be dedicated to Ephraim. Shkhedi Shvat, we all know, Shkhedi Shasiri, Shkhedi Shachadisrei. And the concept of Yud Shvat, Tuba Shvat, and all the other occasions that go on, Throughout the month of Shvat. Pashas Vaeda in itself is a shear that can go on for hours on end. Needless to say, we all know, we've mentioned many times, Vaeda. Spelled Vav Aleph, Reish Aleph. Vav Aleph is Gematria 7, and therefore there are seven Makis mentioned, seven plagues mentioned in this week's Parsha. Next week's Parsha is Boi. Boi is Gematria Base Aleph 3, and therefore the last final three Makis are mentioned in Parsha Boi. The Makis, the plagues, what were they all about? Hashem sends Moshe and Aaron, because Moshe wouldn't go himself, because Moshe wouldn't talk, etc., etc. All that transpired to get Moshe with Aaron together there. To tell Pare, let my people go. No. Anything else is needed? The words of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the message from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Pare, let the Jews leave. Ironically, Pare turns around and says, no. First of all, I don't even know who this God that you're talking about is. Pare himself considered himself a deity, he considered the Nilus a deity, 
he had a myriad of deities, sheep, whatever it was. He said, no, I'm not letting the Eden go. And in essence, HaKadosh Baruch Hu hardens Parai's heart. Now, that's an expression you don't usually hear. Back in the beginning of school years, person hears, child hears, Hashem hardened Parai's heart. Today's days, when there's a hardened heart, the person has a heart attack. Simple as that. Hardening of the arteries, the person dies. Come on, Allah Islam. <coughs> he hardened his heart. The Jews, in turn, are made reference to many times as Amkshe Oyrif, a hard necked nation. Rough, stiff necked. Stubborn. But the stubbornness is mentioned in their neck, not in their heart. Whereas Parai, being a Goy, first of all, and second of all, having to prove that he had a heart, Baruch had to harden it. He was ruthless, absolutely ruthless. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, I'm going to make sure he gets punished for what he did to the Jews. And whereas he could just have said, okay, let the Jews go, and he said, okay, and there'd be no punishment involved, he said no, he was stubborn about it. He was persistent. I'm not letting them go. They're my workforce. They're my slaves. I'm not letting them go. No slave ever escaped Egypt. Not letting them go. Akash Baruch, though, had different plans for Pari. Abba Yisrael, as we're about to discuss, have a heart. And when a person has a heart, they learn to forgive. Maybe not to forget, but to forgive. Forgiving is a very, very great attribute. The humility of the sinner who says, please forgive me, I beg you forgive me, I don't know what I did, why I did it, how I got into that, I am no longer that, I no longer would do such things, I would never even think of doing such a thing, I despise the person that did it. And the person that was affected has a choice. Torah tells us the choice should be to forgive. There is a prohibition in the Torah to take revenge. 
One may not seek revenge for something someone did to them. But pray tell me, how do you expect me to forgive those grave sins that were committed against me? This ultimately gives you a level, gives you a, not a prerogative really, not a choice in the matter per se, but rather gives you an opportunity to achieve and ascertain a level higher than who knows who. Picture yourself, my friends, Achman al-Islam being a victim in the Holocaust. Seeing Moshe, who now became a capo, to save his own skin and to get an extra piece of potato, and almost have a little less of a workforce, and see him with his stick pounding on your head, pounding on your back, hitting your legs out from under you, and laughing and enjoying it together with the Nazis in Makshim But he was a Jew, born to a Jewish mother. Can one find forgiveness for such a person? Can one say to themselves today, 70 years later, I understand his predicament, I don't know what I would do in his predicament? Very, very, very difficult. But the Kedoshim, those holy Jews that survived and that came out alive and survived this persecution and survived what they were put through, these holy Jews are the people that can find in their hearts and can teach perhaps and be living Dugmachaya's living lessons, how one forgives. Pare's heart, in turn, HaKadosh Baruch was not ready to let him forgive. To let him, let the Jews go, to give him an opportunity that the Jews should thank him before they left, and say, okay, we forgive you. So much so that HaKadosh Baruch Hu does not give him the opportunity to change his heart. Does not give him opportunity for a change of heart. A Yid, on the other hand, as we said, Va'eda El Avroham El Yitzchok El Yaakov. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says in the beginning of the Pasha, as he speaks to Mesha, I have appeared to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, your forefathers, making reference to them as being the fathers of the nation. And he says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I'm going to fulfill the promise that I did to the forefathers of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov to take them out of exile.
how do we refer, where do we make reference to the forefathers? Rashi immediately says, Va'eda, to whom? To the fathers. Who did he appear to? The fathers. Rashi is pointing out the distinctive qualities that each one of our forefathers had. The only thing they had in common was they were our fathers. Fathers, founding fathers of the Jewish nation. That's the only thing they had in common. Avram Avinu refers to Avram, Oy Havai, my beloved. He loved me. He loved me, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Avram served God through love. Through chesed, kindness, and compassion, and love. And although Avram was subjected to so many different things in his life, so many people that had put him through so much, still in all, Avram forgave. Avram forgave, and Avram continued on. For his derech, chesed, was done through Ahava. He loved Hashem. Ahavas Hashem. Yitzchak, Yitzchak in turn was through Yira, through fear. Pachad Yitzchak. Through fear of God. A tremendously high level. But sometimes, that much easier to work with. When Rashi describes the difference between a servant that serves God out of love and and a servant that serves God out of fear, Rashi says, the physical servant that serves his master. The one that serves out of fear, at the first given opportunity to escape, he'll run away. Doesn't want to be subjected to the fear. Whereas, the one who serves out of God, out of love, would never ever desert his master. He loves him. We are not diminishing the Ava or the Yira. We're not making any less of the fear or the love. But by awe and fear of heaven, Yitzchak sent us, taught us, set a precedence for us how to fear God. So if you don't do something because you love God, you do it out of the fear of God. Do it out of the fear of God that you fear the repercussions that could happen. So whereas someone sinned against you, you in turn turn around and say, two wrongs don't make a right. 
and me to go out now and destroy this person for doing that, what do I accomplish? I'll destroy them, I'll destroy their families. I'm licking my wounds, correct. And who knows if I'll ever be able to overcome the wounds. But as we say, two wrongs don't make a right. And by going out and hurting and trying to destroy the other person, it's not necessarily going to fix your wound. And for the most part, you should know that that person probably tortured every day and every living moment, every wake moment and every sleeping moment of their lives. Are they tortured by what they've done to you? And out of their fear of God, and out of their love of God, they repent over and over and over. Yaakov, on the other hand, was a balance of both. He took both approaches and combined them. And he says, My father, and not the God of my father, and the God of Avram, my grandfather, and the fear of Yitzchak, had this not been for me, means to say that he incorporated both, the love and the fear. Although they're unlike love and fear, they share a commonality. Both of them inspire action. Now, Therab explains in Tanya. Love of God motivates observances of the positive mitzvahs. And fear of God ensures they won't distance themselves from doing the lesa, say, the prohibitions. And Rashi hints to this with an emphasis that Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov were avos, were our fathers. The sages teach us that the principal offspring of the righteous are the good deeds. Maisim Tevim. So by describing Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov as fathers, Rashi is emphasizing that their emotional attachment to God did not remain abstract. But it translated into offspring. Practical good deeds. In addition, by highlighting their forefathers, were first and foremost the fathers. Rashi illustrates that more than just the remarkable qualities they exhibited in their own personal service to God as our forefathers, their main accomplishments in life were they bred and inspired successive generations to follow in God's path. And there, with this we say in Tefillah, Le'yomosh mipicha, lepizaracha, one should not allow it to leave. The trainer should never leave 
from our children or our grandchildren or any of our offspring or any of our generations. And thereby, by implementing the Maisim Toivim, the good deeds, one cements the purification and sees to it that his name, his virtues, his good deeds, even if they were way far less than, God forbid, his sins, his good deeds, though, carry on, and they're emanated, and they're brought about by the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Nobody wants their imperfections, their sins, their bad qualities to go be passed down to you to future generations. We only want them to pick up on the good and to be connected to the good and to live with the good. And that, of course, symbolizes Tera and the Meissen Tevin. Where do we start? So the Tater tells us about these makis, the plagues. And the Tater tells us how the plagues are a lesson to us in our lifelong journey. The blood and then the frogs. What is the significance of of these plagues. To the preschooler, it's a picture. I paint this one red and a green frog. And my teacher told me this magnificent story, how all the waters turned to blood. And a big frog came out of the water and they hit it and then more frogs came out. Wow, you can tell us the Parsha so beautifully, my child. What does it really mean to us? What is this to us? What does it teach us? The Bnei Israel's exile in Egypt seemed interminable. They never thought it would end. So much so that they refused to believe when Moshe told them, you're leaving, you're going to go out of this goal. It was not even something they could grasp. They cannot comprehend this, comprehend it. Meisha in his own part couldn't understand it. Meisha could not understand how this could possibly be God's plan. And so too, as we spoke before, anything that we go through in life, we can't figure out how could this possibly have been God's plan. But what we need to do is, we need to take this and strengthen ourselves with it. Better ourselves with it and show ourselves we are not like those. We are even better and superior in our Torah, our Tefillah, our Maisim Tevim, our Ben Adam L'Chaveri. But Moshe, as much as he didn't understand how this could be good, 
Only after the Makis did Moshe see the master plan. And the Egyptian grip began to crumble. Every day, every generation, one must regard himself as though he left Egypt on that very day. Mishnah Psachim, Pedig Yud, Mishnah Hev, keep his word home. Tanya, the first words of Pedig Memzayin. Egypt is Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim comes from the word Meitzar. Constraint. And Hasidus explains every generation, every day, we have a constant battle that we need to strive to escape our personal Egypt. The internal constraints that hinder and restrain a person's devoted service to, of God. And therefore, these ten plagues represent ten steps through which we can breach even the toughest internal barriers, freeing our souls to fully experience our attachment to God. The first plague, Dam, took place in the river, in the Nile River, where the Egyptians worshipped as a god. And this river turns to blood. I'm going to go to a little two different explanations of this. The concept of water itself naturally is cold. You boil water, you have hot water. A hot sunny day, maybe the water will be warm. The nature of water is cold. And thereby also the Nile represents coolness, indifference towards things that are godly and holy. This attitude of coolness is the root of all spiritual ills. A person, it's impossible for a person to remain perpetually unexcited about both holiness and the challenges of holiness. Consequently, even if a person observes all the mitzvahs, but he does so coldly and apathetically, this detachment, Rahman al-Islam, invariably will bring him to be interested and attracted to ideas that are incompatible with the life of God and holiness. So the first and foremost crucial step towards our escape from Egypt, therefore, is to rid ourselves of the cold waters of the Nile and to infuse our, Yiddish, our Yiddishkeit, our Teda, observance with passion and excitement so the Meitzar this constraint that we are being wrapped in we see now the order in which the plagues were presented 
The first plague hit the water, the cold, rigid waters. However, what happened to this water? What is cold? Cold by nature symbolizes an attitude of coolness, detachment, indifference. So the first plague in which the waters of the Nile were transformed into warm, life-giving blood symbolizes that we must imbue our service of God with warmth and excitement. In contrast, the second plague, the plague of the frogs, a an amphibian that lives in the cold water, they swarmed everything related to Pari and Egypt. And particularly their ovens, which are on fire. This symbolizes that breaking through the internal Egypts, our internal constraints that we have requires developing a coolness and disinterest in material passions and pleasures. Under normal circumstances, ridding ourselves of these competing loyalties symbolized by the plague of frogs, Will be the first step to take before attempting to live a devoted a life devoted to God and godliness would be to be cold to everything that's physical in the world. But we see, however, the plague of frogs was not the first plague, but the second. The plague of blood preceded it. And the order of the two plagues teach us. Even before you turn off your tivus you turn off your desires for the evil and for the wicked, even before you turn off your mind frame from being connected to impurity, which one would think is what has to happen before they can start studying Torah. One needs to cleanse themselves totally from everything that they've done, cleanse themselves what they stand for, cleanse themselves for their own not proper attributes. And only then one would think we could start to study Torah and devote ourselves to mitzvahs. Tells us Makis, the order of the Makis. No. The Cham, the Chimum of the blood comes before the coldness of the frog. To teach us that even before we've succeeded in cooling down the material passions, we must already infuse Teirah and Mitzvahs. And not just infuse it, but with fervor and enthusiasm. Because the light and warmth of our passion-filled Mitzvahs will assist in dispelling any dark and undesirable passions that remain.
And therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu still turns and says to, to Moshe, Ani Eksha Eslif Parei Vibisi Eslisay Saivas Mivsay Beretz Mitzrayim I will harden Parei's heart I will increase my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So God strikes the Egyptians, struck the Egyptians' templates to punish them for the cruel enslavement of B'nai Yisrael. And they were supernatural plagues. They also forced Pari to recognize God's existence and might. As we learned already, I've allowed you to stand in order to show you my strength, in order to declare my name is all over earth. This was the goal, shall we say, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to inflict Parai until he recognizes and understands and admits But Parai has his heart hardened, as we said, and therefore refuses to accept what's being shown to him. But just to show the world the greatness of God was sufficient Justice alone was sufficient of the ten plagues. The sufficient cause the ten plagues should be presented. It actually brings another reason. And he says, Vani Eksha, I will make hard, says Rashi. Rashi explains, since Pari behaved wickedly and defied me, it's better for me that his heart is be hardened so that I can increase my signs, my wonders to him, in him. Thereby you will recognize my, my mighty deeds. And such is the custom of the Kharish Baruch Hu. He brings retribution on the nations so that Israel should hear and fear. So according to this explanation, the primary goal of the plague was not the effect on the Egyptians, Egyptians in Apari, <coughs> but to inspire awe, to inspire wonder within B'nai Yisrael itself. It's a principle that Rashi teaches in every, in the very first verse in the Torah supports this, this approach. Rashi writes that God created all of existence for the sake of the Jewish people. And for the sake of the Teda. This is true not only to the initial creation of the world, but every event that inspires at any time thereafter. And therefore, even when it seems that Ashkacha Pratis caused a particular event to occur for other reasons, something that happened very, very negative, for example. The true objective is direct impact the event will have on the Jewish people. So accordingly, 
Rashi emphasizes that God brought the ten plagues on the, upon the Egyptians not only in retribution against the Egyptians for the treatment of Israel, but to make them recognize the Creator, but rather for the effect of the plagues it would have on Bnei Israel themselves. They would inspire within them a more profound fear of God. Another one of the plagues is the Borod, the hail. But the Borod was not just hail, it housed a flame within it. Fire was flaming within the Borod, within the piece of hail. This was the seventh of the ten plagues. I skipped the whole bunch, obviously. God caused this heavy, heavy, devastating hailstorm to literally wreak havoc upon Egypt once again. It struck all the people that were outside, all the livestock that was outside, and it crushed the remaining crops that still had not been destroyed by the previous plagues the crops, the trees. In addition, says, the ten of the bowls of ice miraculously contain fire. What is the purpose of this unusual and doubly, doubly miraculous plague since fire and water don't exi- coexist? Not only to destroy Egypt's crops, but also to crush the Egyptian delusional arrogance and self-assuredness. Egypt did not depend on rain, as we said before. The irrigation of its crops did not come from the rain. From time to time the waters of the Nile rise, and it had its own passageway where it had to go through pools, canals, and the entire land would be irrigated. This independence of relying on the Nile to do itself its own thing led the people of Egypt to believe that they were self-sufficient, not at God's mercy, for survival. And the Novi Yecheskel, therefore, describes Parai as the great crocodile that lies down in the midst of of its rivers, and he said, my river is my own, and I made myself. And the commentaries explain, Pari felt that, I do not need the heavens. My river provides me all my necessities. So to strike down their arrogance, their false sense of security, God, God causes now a supernatural mix, ice and fire, and it rains down from the heavens. Ice represents the conceited person's coldness, aloof, indifferent to others, 
But at the same time, the arrogant person can be heatedly passionate about himself at least. So those two manifestations of arrogance are in fact two sides of the same coin. Because the conceited person's icy coldness towards others is due to his obsessiveness of his own. How he adores himself. And accordingly, God crushed the Egyptians' arrogance with the plague of hail, the combination of fire and ice. But after the dominant Sfardea, where the Egyptian magicians, shall we call them, duplicated the dominant Sfardea, Along came Makas Shechin, causing boils. Kin, no, sorry, comes along Makas Kinim, which was so small that they couldn't be duplicated. Moving on to the Makas Dever, then Shechin. The commentaries ask, why do we find that Shechin they could not duplicate? They can never duplicate Shechin. And the commentaries answer in different ways. Different opinions, but yet all one. We find Makashkin something that did not happen by the other Makis. This Makah was commanded but to Moshe and to Aaron to do some natural action. Not just lifting a staff, hitting the water, smiting the water, and having it turn to blood, or having a frog come out, etc. Something physical needed to be done here. First of all, they had to take hands full of these ashes, which were still burning. Secondly, it wasn't enough to take the handful. It had to be Moshe's both hands and Aaron's both hands. Thirdly, Moshe had to rear back and throw it with all his might and it dispersed all over Egypt. To this point, it looked like something physical being done. Took it in their hands, they put it, they threw it. But on the other hand, it was very clear. That the truthful part of this thing didn't cause things that Makas Shechin was able to affect. For you throw the piach, you throw these ashes, they weren't hot anymore. Now Moshe threw them all his might, both handfuls, 
and then iron. It couldn't possibly have reached the entire Egypt. But the fact that the star, the magicians could not stand in front of Moshe any longer, they couldn't find their hands and feet. They could not begin to understand this plague. Although they figured out already before that God could do everything. So that's great. God can do anything. It comes from heaven. Coming from heaven, God could produce anything. But here the human being is throwing it. An open miracle. So because of this, is the intermediaries that were doing this, causing this open, open miracle... They couldn't get a grasp on this. The famous When it comes to the actual makas, to the plagues, if you're keeping score in the Haggadah, <laughs> there's a machlekes Shmeis Rabbah uh, elaborates on this more the machlekes is between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva Rabbi Eliezer says each plague had four parts had four plagues within it So the commentaries explain. I'm sorry. Rebbe says there are four makas. Rabbi Akiva said there were five within each maka. And the commentaries explain what is their dispute. It's the actual. Lost for a word. <laughs> the actual way that the makas were produced. Four symbolizes the four different foundations: Esh, Ruach, Mayim, and Ofer. But in addition to this. There's one even more stringent, higher than the division of the four foundations. This is perhaps where the Machlekes lies. According to Rabbi Lezer, these Machlekes were ingrained only in four different types of material, and therefore there were four Machlekes, whereas Rabbi Akiva adds and said, no, there was also the Chemer HaYihuli. Therefore, it was five makas. The Chazal tell us, if you keep your score at home, it's like Psachim 
Kuf Tezayin Amidbeis, 116, side 2. As we said, in the Mishnah, and Chassidus explains, as we said before, Mitzrayim is Meitzar Agvola, a constraint. And we need to do away with this in order to serve God. And therefore, the, our sages teach us and direct us. One needs to constantly be battling their, their restraints, their own personal Mitzrayim. One needs to constantly be standing up against it and getting out of it, getting over it. It's very easy for someone else to tell you to do so. It's so much harder for you yourself to do it. To feel that you were wronged and to be able to pull yourself out of it. So therefore we need to find that the Machlech and Sinabalazarbekiva was also the way of service service to God. Just like physicality is divided into four foundations, as we said before, so too service to God is divided into four different compartments. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name is written with four letters, Yud, K, Vav, K. The first thing, action. Doing Teda and Mitzvahs in essence. The second is the feelings, the emotion, love of God and fear of God. Thirdly is the Seichel, understanding the greatness of God. And finally, the Pneumius, from where we pull out Mesidus Nefesh for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Where as much as we want to do something, we don't do it, we perform Mesidus Nefesh, not to cause a Chil Hashem. So Rabbi Leza says, in order to be able to get away from the constraints of which we are subjected to, the Mitzorim and Gvalis, one needs to hit on these four points. First, to fight with the Yitzhahara, holding back, committing, keeping Torah Mitzvahs. To strengthen over the emotions Afterwards, to uh, alight yourselves from what the mind frame could be and from the fear of the presentation. And finally, to achieve Messias Nefesh, which is in the finest and the most beautiful way, thank you, to attest that the Messias Nefesh was pure from any kind of even iota of selflessness, of saying, Ani, I. Comes Rabbi Akiva and he adds, not only these four,
Chayim. There's a fifth that we need to hit. The Etzem HaNefesh. This point, this Nekuda Pnimius, that's in the depth, in the deepest part of each and every Jew. It needs to actually, this Pintalid has to reach the Etzem HaNefesh. So greater than just the Mesiris Nefesh, that we said that nothing, it's the self, excuse me, nullification. The Mesiris Nefesh of a level where I don't say anything, it's not me, no, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm not doing this for my own personal gain. Greater than that is that we should reach and achieve on a personal level, ascertain the greatness with God. Just to simply put these words, it's not enough that a Jew should say, should sit and learn Torah, and be Mekayim, it's mitzvahs. One needs to remove themselves from their restraint, constraints. Their inner struggle this strange actions, the strange thoughts, the strange beliefs. One needs to have a pure heart from the most inner essence of the person and be filled only with Ava Hashem, love of God, and Yiddish Hashem, fear of God. And so too the mind needs to be full with the greatness of God and recognition of the greatness of Tera and Mitzvahs. We look at it sometimes, Tera and Mitzvahs, as a constraint of its own. I can't talk Lush and Hara. Everybody knows about it, but I can't talk it. I'm not allowed to say it. As known the fact, as known as the fact is, can't say it. To take nikama, to revenge, to avenge oneself after someone did the worst of worst. It's it's horrific. You're tying my hands and feet. You're making me eat up within me. Tells you the tater, no, it's not within you. You're not you. We need to nullify ourselves to an extent where we say that it was not me that was done to. And the famous story of a Rebbe that arrived in a town and there was a woman in a guna that was looking for her husband. And someone saw the Rebbe alight from the wagon and said, Oh, it's him. That's the man. The wayward husband. And they started to lace it into him to beat him to pulp. And finally the wife came, they brought the wife, and the wife says, No, that's not him. They said, Oops. And they asked him later, Rebbe, How did you withstand it? The embarrassment, the bushes. So they had none. They weren't hitting me, they were hitting him.
to me, he didn't want to hit. For us to be able to ascertain such a level, and to say that yes, this was done to me, but, but, it was a master plan, this bitl hayesh is the level that we're talking about here. And that itself is not enough, it's not sufficient. The seichel, the intelligence, intellect, is cold by nature. And this could be lit up with Islamus that it needs to be Favedis Hashem. And therefore we need to be Pedits. These boundaries of Seichel as deep as they can bring us to the depth of our souls because we need to see to it that we ride above them and this way we achieve the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim the true Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and we go to Chedus Shlema to true freedom and we'll reach to the level of Bayel Pare as we talk about by Mincha and we'll talk next week in Hashem Hopefully, Mitzvah will be by then. Surely, will be in Yerushalayim, Merakedish. All of us, Besuka Achas, Beleiv Echod, Keish Echod, and will be unconditionally connected one with another, and no one will have any kind of tulunis, any kind of complaints, any kind of hard feelings. And we'll sit together with listening to Teira Chadosh Amit Teitzei. Mashiach Tzidkenu in Yerushalayim and HaKadosh Good Shabbos to all